And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I have a special affection for Barney Frank, uh, because when he began his political career in the 70s, running for state legislature in Massachusetts, he ran under the slogan, Neatness is in everything, which I think are words to live by. He's also one of the most incisive and witty observers of our political scene and a guy who's lived a lot of history. Uh, I sat down with him recently and talked about his life and career in politics. Barney Frank, when I first heard your name, it was from my sister who lives in Massachusetts, and you were a young legislator, and you were part of sort of the reform progressive uh, group in uh, Massachusetts. But you grew up in a different place. You grew up in Jersey, and you grew up in Hudson County uh, at a time when uh, it was still uh, a machine town. Uh, what, what was uh, what was the, what was the what were the politics of of that time like? It was a machine and a very corrupt one. People who have seen on the waterfront get a sense that that was set in Hudson County, in New Jersey, in the city of Hoboken. Uh, you had one of the great bosses, Frank Hague. Yeah, uh, mayor of Jersey City. I am the law, he said, when he, uh, he banned the CIO. He was a Democrat, but a very conservative one. He banned the CIO from uh, operating in Jersey City, and then when he was told that was illegal, he said, I am the law. So it was a corrupt political machine that was deeply entangled with two other then very corrupt organizations, the Teamsters Union, I take three, the Teamsters Union, the Longshoremen's Union, the East Coast branch had been mafia-run, and uh, the mafia. And it was very much uh, that. In fact, so deeply uh, corrupt was that, that uh, <clears throat> in 1967, I moved to, I'd moved to Boston to go to school. My father had died. Um, and I was uh, involved <clears throat> in Kevin White's campaign for me. He was running against a terrible racist. And I got involved because I didn't like her, but I came to admire him. And he and I hit it off well. And he told me in December that he wanted me to be his chief of staff. And I called my mother, very excited to say, very happily, that I was going to be chief of staff to the mayor. And she said, with no irony, she wasn't trying to be cute, but it just reflects the question you asked she said, that's wonderful, because she knew this was something I wanted to do. But she said, uh, you understand, I'm not going to tell anyone. Yes. We're not going to put that <laughs> in the Bayonne Times, because in Bayonne, where I grew up, or in Jersey City, to be the chief assistant to a mayor was pretty much a criminal enterprise. Yeah. you, uh, Your folks, uh, you, I've read that your folks weren't active in politics, but like a lot of uh, Jews of that era were committed liberals. Oh, very much. Our, our family uh, Bible was the New York Post back in the days when yeah, it was Yeah, when newspaper. Dorothy Schiff was the publisher. Yeah, and you had uh, people like Murray Kempton and, and uh, William Shannon, uh, uh, James Wexler himself. They were really, Max Lerner, great. It, it, they were very, very much uh, uh, liberals. Uh, but the notion of getting involved in politics, my father ran a truck stop, so there was a certain inevitability where he had to interact with the politicians. But but politics was just, it wasn't only that it wasn't respectable, there was just no honest way to do it. So they, we, we were very interested. My older sister, uh, Ann Lewis, Lewis yes. uh, who was uh, President Clinton's uh, press secretary, um, she's, she was precocious. And in 1952, 
when she was 14, she became a big Stevenson campaigner, and she's the one who got me involved. So we, we were active. But I got some sense of this, by the way, in 1956, when I was 16. I joined the volunteers for Stevenson, and uh, I went to the headquarters, and I so soon realized that the head of it was a political organization guy who had been put there to make sure that these uh, volunteers didn't get too interested in a, in a political career beyond a kind of a, a presidential thing. But we were fascinated by it, and we had dinner table conversation about it, absolutely. You know, uh, you, we, we talked, when we talked about doing this podcast about uh, our mutual friend Abner Mikva, and, you know, there's this legendary story, which he shared with us when he was on the podcast shortly before he died, about his first uh, his first foray into politics was in 48 to work for Adlai Stevenson when he was running for governor, and the and the Chicago ward guy at the desk at the headquarters when he walked in famously said, who sent you? He said, nobody sent me. He said, we don't want nobody, nobody mm-hmm. sent. Same kind, of, same kind of principle. Absolutely. And in fact, look, we had this problem, and we've gotten over it. But uh, one of the problems we had with turnout, and there was this conflict, and I, somebody should do some academic work on it. One of the reasons you did not have larger black turnout was – they increasingly became populated in, populous in cities. Yeah. And uh, Dick Daly didn't want a lot of black people voting right. in Chicago. Um, other mayors, the incumbents, didn't want to expand the uh, the voting base. That's one of the things about politics that's gotten better. Um, you know, people forget sometimes in some areas we do make some big improvements. But, yeah, there was they, they liked the control. They liked uh, they knew who was voting, and that's the way they wanted it. Now, your family, your dad got kind of touched by the corruption of – uh, that time, what what happened there? His uh, his brother Harry had a an automobile dealership, and uh, Harry bribed the commissioners of the city of Bayonne to uh, buy his cars. My father was the uh, was the intermediary and carried the cash. And uh, uh, what happened was that the, uh, the the Republicans who ran the uh, the uh, state at that time, the uh, prosecutors in New Jersey were, were maybe still appointed by the governor, not locally elected. So there was a Republican prosecutor who wanted my father to testify against the city commissioners. He didn't want to do that, so he was uh, actually jailed for contempt for a while. So I remember on my sixth birthday, uh, we sneaked into New York. He was hiding out. We sneaked into New York to see uh, Robin Hood of Sherwood Forest with Errol Flynn. Uh, my mother kind of took two different buses to... Uh, uh, to get in there, but he uh, he did serve, and that of course another reason why he, uh, when I was that's not when I was six, uh, neither he nor my mother ever wanted to get actively involved in politics. You you went to Harvard, uh, and while you were there, you participated in the Freedom Summer and uh, went down to uh, uh, I guess to register voters, right? Yeah, um, actually that was during my graduate days. Undergraduate, I became active <clears throat> in politics mm-hmm. at Harvard both Young Democrats and student government, uh, I just went to a 50th wedding anniversary party for uh, uh, Cokie and Steve Roberts. Uh, Cokie, she was in Cokie, but a group of us who got uh, to know each other during the National Student Association days, uh, and there was a very charismatic figure named Mallory Lowenstein, who was really yeah, a, sure. a brilliant organizer, and, and, and to me the model of a guy who, who could combine zeal on the issues with, with, with a good, hard-headed pragmatism. Um, and the reason I mentioned him is that he's the one. He 
He had really come up with the idea in 1963 of sending white students into Mississippi. What you had was this. Uh, black people in Mississippi really were not much better off than, uh, than, than blacks in South Africa. It was really appalling. And uh, there were, I think, less than 50 black voters in Mississippi, a state with a couple of million black people. And what happened was when black people tried to vote, they were, A, physically prevented. They just said, I'm not registering you, tough. And if they persisted, they, they were assaulted. They lost their jobs right away. They lost their business. They lost their sharecropping rights. But in some cases, they were killed. Well, the argument the whites used was, well, they don't want to vote. They're perfectly happy. You know, we just heard, a, I heard that again from one of those Duck Dynasty fools. We said, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, back then, everything was good. They, they, were, they were satisfied. So um, Lowenstein was friendly with a man named Aaron Henry, who was the uh, head of the NAACP in uh, uh, Mississippi. And uh, Doc Henry, they called him, he was a pharmacist. So he was somewhat immune from the pressures because he was a pharmacist who sold to black people. So they couldn't cut him off. And uh, he decided to run for governor of Mississippi in 1963. And what they wanted to do was to show that, no, black people would like to vote. They're just being prevented from doing so. Lowenstein had the kind of a charismatic reputation. He had taught at both Stanford and Yale. So he got Stanford and Yale students in the fall of 63, the summer of 63, Mississippi has an off-year gubernatorial election, it was in 63. He got a bunch of Yale and uh, Stanford students to go to Mississippi. And the purpose was actually just to physically provide some help. But what happened was they were mistreated, in some cases assaulted and jailed, just as if they'd been black Mississippians. And what then occurred was it turned out that when white racists in Mississippi beat up and bullied and jailed black Mississippians, it didn't get a lot of attention. But when they were doing white this kids to from white the north, kids from yeah. the north, from Yale and Stanford, right. and it was in their back, uh, back home, in their papers, it got a lot of attention. So thinking about that, Lowenstein and others, Dr. King was much involved in the Joint leadership at that point, they got SNCC and uh, uh, the Urban League, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the NLA, all worked together. And they set up this organization beginning in early 64 that became the Mississippi Freedom Summer. And they consciously recruited white people, some blacks obviously as well, but white people from all over the country to go to Mississippi to demonstrate that the problem in Mississippi was not black uh, lack of interest, but, but white physical oppression. And, and I joined that in part at, at Lowenstein's request. Did you go down there anticipating that you, that you might be assaulted? I was terrified. Absolutely. I was absolutely terrified. And in case there was any uh, doubt about it, uh, we went down, we, we trained in a place in Ohio, and uh, we went down in two groups. I was in the second group, and we left on a Sunday uh, the first group had left the Sunday before. The first group had included uh, Andrew Goodman, who met up with two uh, Mississippians, an African-American named James Cheney and a uh, white guy named Michael Schreiner in New Yorker. And uh, as people now know, they were killed right. the, day, the day Goodman got there. They were, they were uh, arrested and brutally murdered. Uh, so on this was the week way, before you went? As I, they, that happened the week before I went. But as so did I, you know about this when you were headed down there? On, on the way down, I, uh, we heard that they were missing. And obviously we had no, uh, you know, no, no hope that they were going to be found. So, yeah, I was, uh, I was terrified. Actually, I did not actually myself register many voters. Um, 
originally I was going to go down and work with uh, uh, the NAACP, Charles Everts, the brother of mm-hmm. the murdered Medgar Evers. Lowenstein had been very involved, and he had a strategic dispute with some of the African-American leaders. I was kind of his aide. And so the administrative role he had asked me to take on just disappeared. So I said, well, I'm here, and I'll just be a volunteer like anybody else. But I wasn't good at registering voters. As people listening to this podcast will understand, um, I was not intelligible to most Mississippians, <laughs> white or black. Um, I mean, I, I got used to black Mississippians uh, believing that my name was Benjamin Franklin. And um, there was just very little I could do to talk to people uh, who, who would understand me. So I was put in the office. I did do some traveling to uh, other places, but I was basically in the office. My job was to, uh, we, we had a, a uh, there was a registration process in Mississippi uh, for a political party, and we were going to create the Freedom Democratic Party and register people in it successfully right. to show that tens and tens of thousands of people. This was the, the thing that Fannie Lou Hamer That's and right. others she were involved with. That's right. She was part of this and that, that presented the delegation to the National Convention. So um, my job was to help organize that. And I, I worked, obviously, with our own people. I did some I had some some encounter with, uh, I had to go to the registrar or, or some secretary of state official in Jackson and... Uh, Somehow he got the impression that I was there to register a party for George Wallace. I never said that, but I did not <laughs> correct him. It, actually, I learned then, I think, one of, the, one of the ways that you are able to be both an ethical and an effective politician is um, you tell the truth and nothing but the truth. But if they want the whole truth, they got to dig for it. <laughs> and um, he didn't dig for it, so he, ne- he never got it. Um, but uh, I, I did work. Uh, we, we did some traveling. At one point, I was on a run to deliver some pamphlets to uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, with uh, a volunteer named Richard Boehmer, who was the uh, male lead in the movie of West Side Story. Oh, yeah, sure. And, uh, uh, but I, I, I saw I was there and, and did... One night we were asked to go do guard duty at one of the Freedom Houses in one of the areas because there was a rumored threat on it. And I said, fine, look, I said I would sign on. But on the other hand, since we are committed to nonviolence, I do not understand what what being a guard would consist of. Interesting for me, though, and it was very helpful in terms of dealing with the kind of attitude you get. Honestly, as Jesse Jackson himself said uh, years ago, he said, yeah, I understand people. If I'm walking in a dark street at night and I see four or five uh, black teenagers, I, I get a little nervous. And so you, you get that because of the racial hostilities in the country. And pretty soon when I was in Jackson, you realized if you were one of the people on the Freedom Summer and you were walking and you heard voices at night, sort of young male voices, you, you sure hope they were black because mm-hmm. if they were white, that could be trouble. How uh, formative was that for you in the rest of your life and in your public life having spent that summer there? Well, it was continuous. I mean, I had uh, I did my political uh, education began at Harvard in this sense. I was a big liberal and still am and proud to say so. Um, I got to Harvard and found for the first time that there were people to my left. Um, in some cases, a small number of people who, who were communists, but, but people whose temperament. It, it was a, a, a radicalism that I think found more satisfaction in, in demonstrative and emotive politics than in dealing with frustrations of trying to get things done. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was aware of that. When I got to Mississippi, this was what I then really focused on was yeah, there is a distinction. We were all very passionate about the cause, 
but many were, I thought, unrealistic in how to do it. And that helped reinforce my view that the, the key job for me uh, was to, to, to find a way to fuse pragmatism and, and, and zealotry. Uh, which do not temperamentally go well together. Yeah, well, I want to talk more about that as we talk about where we are uh, today. You went, so you mentioned Kevin White, despite your mother's uh, misgivings. Uh, well, she wasn't she was upset. Just she, about talking. My, she I was went, glad I was doing it. She just wanted me to know it. Yeah, my mother used to, if she didn't like a candidate I was working for, she said, that, that's fine, but I'm not going to tell my friends you're mm-hmm. working for that candidate. So you, uh, but but that was a, Kevin White, that, that was a, a sort of, the golden age of mayors. I mean, you had John Lindsay in New yeah. York, and uh, you know mayors around the country were start, were starting to do really bold things and confronting some of these racial issues. No question. I, I got involved with Kevin White because he was running in 1967 against a woman named Louise Day Hicks, who yes. was just a racist. And um, and that was actually her platform yeah. to stop busing. You know where and, I stand was uh, yeah. And um, he beat her more narrowly than people expected, and. Uh, I would tell you, I, uh, there was some element in that then of uh, what people are now feeling about the Trump-Clinton race, yeah. which is, oh, my God, that woman can get elected. And, and that led to a useful mobilization that I hope is going to be a forerunner. But um, he was the first mayor in the city of Boston to integrate the African-American population into the administration. He he hired black people. He worked with them. And then... F- Three months into his presidency, Mon- uh, his, his mayoralty, mayoralty yeah. Martin Luther King was murdered. Yeah, little interesting note. Uh, I get a call. You got to come down. Uh, you know, Dr. King was murdered, and uh, they had to go get the mayor. The mayor was in the movies. He was watching Atlanta burn literally huh. uh, when he got that news. And what paid off was that the work we had done in those first three months was helpful. Boston was one of the cities where there were, you know, no no violence and, and racism. But he was a big liberal. Uh, he not only integrated the community, one of the things we did that I'm very proud of is we were one of the first cities in the country, at least tied for first, to say, no, you're not building a highway through here. You're not going to disrupt people with more highway construction. Right. Uh, we want public transportation instead. Uh, he was an early environmentalist. We did things like uh, we boycotted grapes uh, for Cesar Chavez at uh, the city hospital in the prison, because unfortunately the people who bore the, bore the bunch. But um, so, yeah, I went to work for him, but he was also a very skillful politician. Yeah. And that was a good continuation of what I had tried to do in, in 64. Actually, I was a little frustrated, you know, and just to go back briefly to 64, that, that movement, the Freedom Democratic Party movement, did kind of uh, fracture some when, it, when people went to the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City and had a debate about how much to accept. I wasn't there, by the way, because I was still theoretically a candidate for a Ph.D., uh-huh. Uh, so I went back to take my generals, which I was, took and passed to no apparent purpose because I never got a degree. Uh, that was a, one, of your, one of your only failed candidacies huh, for the yes. PhD. Um, the, you, you'd made a decision then uh, to go to run yourself, and this is when I first became aware of you uh, for the legislature. What, what was the decision-making process in terms of moving from a behind-the-scenes guy to an out front guy, because honestly, they may not have understood you in uh, Mississippi, but you don't sound like a Bostonian either. No, no, absolutely right. Um, I had been interested in politics for my teenage years, but in my teens, even before I got to college, it became clear to me that I could never get elected to anything uh, because I knew then that I was gay. 
I realized it when I was 13. And being gay then was just despised. I mean, uh, there wasn't even any discussion about uh, gay rights. It was just you accepted the fact that you were one of the most uh, hated people. I mentioned in my book, Joseph Welsh, who's a great liberal hero, the lawyer who took on Joe McCarthy. One of the things that made him a hero among liberals was when he uh, uh, deflated Roy Cohn, McCarthy's evil aide, um, and a former lawyer for Donald yes, Trump, yes. Um, in, 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 in a comment that uh, made fun of Cohn's homosexuality. Uh, Cohn had asked him in a mocking way to say, well, what does a pixie mean? Or McCarthy asked him, and looking at Cohn, uh, well, said, oh, a, a pixie is a relative of a fairy. People knew insiders that Cohn was gay. I'm 14. I'm cheering for a guy who's making any gay remark because it just never occurred to me there was any other uh, possibility. Uh, so I never thought I could win uh, because to be elected office, you got to be popular. Nothing could be less popular than being gay. So I went to work for the mayor, and I said, okay, here's the deal. I can probably go back and forth um, as a uh, – I was going to go back and finish my PhD thesis. Uh, I'll be an aide. I'll, I'll, I'll be active in politics, but I won't be that public. Uh, on the other hand, as White's assistant, I had gotten very public. It was just mm-hmm. the nature of the job, and I did a lot of media stuff. Um, so I had gone back. I had decided to abandon my PhD studies um, and go to work in politics for other people. And I went to work for a liberal congressman named Michael Harrington from the mm-hmm. North Shore of Massachusetts. And I was working for him for a year, and friends called to say, you know what? The state representative from the downtown Boston district, Back Bay and Beacon Hill, was retiring. He was a liberal Republican of a sort that no longer can be sustained. And I had gotten to be very known in that area. That was the one area in Boston I could have won in because it was full of people who were not also born in Boston. And I figured, you know what? This is probably the only job I can get, but let's see if I can win it. And and that's why I ran. Um, We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Barney Frank. So you said before you ran, you thought there was... Uh, you couldn't run because of anti-gay sentiment. But there there was another way to go, which is to simply not disclose the fact that you were gay, to stay in the closet. And that's the decision. that Did you think about that? Did oh, you? absolutely. Well, all the time. And yes, I said, okay, here's the, the deal, my internal conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to be an elected officer. I think I'll be good at it. On the other hand, it's not going to be a long-time career because I can't see anything beyond the state legislature. Um, and I so much want to do this that I'll, I'll, I'll stay in the closet. And, but for me, staying in the closet didn't just mean not telling people. It meant a kind of repression of my personal life because particularly if you're somewhat prominent, mm-hmm. um, you, you really can't do much uh, and, and not be revealed. Um, so I decided that I would uh, make that sacrifice of a personal life to have a chance at a, a uh, not a lifetime political career, but, but a, a stint in politics. Um, but I also at that point made one very important decision that I'm glad I made and that I've stuck to. And that is I would not tell people I was gay, but I would not in any way support anything anti-gay publicly. I made the decision at that point that I would be fully supportive of... Uh, and, in fact, you introduced rights. legislation. Well, I did. I, um, by the way, that also was another principle that I decided in my, in my discussion about how to be ethical and practical. Um, 
beginning then because it, being gay was illegal. Gay sex is illegal. And I then decided um, that I that the way for me to be an honest politician, and I have I, I kept that for all those years, um, I promised that I would always obey every law that I voted for. Um, I thought that's about as good as you can get as a, as, as, as a politician. And um, I uh, decided then that I would be fully supportive of gay rights. So what happened was, this was 1972, just after Stonewall. For the first time, organizations of gays and lesbians in, in Massachusetts organized. And they circulated a, uh, a letter to everybody running for the state legislature. That I'd met them and was working with them, but still caused it personally. And... Um, the uh, actually, my sister Ann Lewis, as I mentioned, had become a co-chair of the National Women's Political Caucus Massachusetts branch, along with a lesbian named Elaine Noble, and she introduced me to to people. And um, so, I uh, they sent her a questionnaire saying, "Would you support a bill to uh, support gay rights?" At, at that point, it was I know it's now we've gotten a lot more initials, but if somebody said, "Oh, I remember when it was just G." Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, well, I remember when it was just F. So <laughs> G, G, G was a, a gay was an improvement over fag. But um, we had the gay rights bill. Would you support it? And I said, yes. And then they also said, would you introduce it? I said, sure. I assumed, however, that being the freshman, I wouldn't be the one to introduce. Uh, you know, Not a lot of other takers, huh? Yeah, so I, I got to be the leading gay rights advocate in Massachusetts by process of elimination. Yeah, that's uh, so you so you you had to sort of, you had to closet your own identity, yes. inhibit your own life, uh, but you expressed yourself through these public actions. I did, and I, I would say a couple of things about this. First of all, I, I did, though, and look, this later got me in a little trouble many years later, but I, I couldn't be totally celibate, so I had to seek the kind of a physical satisfaction, but without the emotional side, and that got you in trouble. Um, uh, the other thing is I would advise people... There was this argument, I don't know, maybe don't say it as much because there aren't as many closeted people, but I would hear people say, oh, uh, she's so committed to her job that she doesn't need a private life. That would be used about people generally they were getting. Right. And the answer is, uh-uh. I, I don't know anybody who doesn't need a private life. There are needs you have, emotional and physical, that no job satisfies. And what I found as I went forward the disparity between what was an increasingly successful public career and a lot of yeah. uh, prominence and the total uh, bleakness of my private life made it worse and worse. You know, there's that old song, Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week. It's the contrast. Um, I would go to parties celebrating the progress we were starting to make on gay rights, and everybody was thanking me, and I went home alone. And that, So, so the, the, the fact that the public job made it worse, not, not, not alleviated it. You... Uh by the way, you're one, uh, I was reminded of this the other day when I, I, I was over uh, doing a podcast with E.J. Dion, and he had in his office one of your old campaign posters with the tagline, Neatness Isn't Everything, which uh, I embraced as my own. I actually had it emblazoned on my corporate uh, – I used to give out caps with my, the logo of my company on it mm. because it kind of encapsulated my philosophy of life. But uh, how did that come about? I also saw an ad of you running the bases at one point. That yeah. was well, actually, it left out the, the, the other ad of which I'm very proud of. I did have a poster. Uh, I should have mentioned that I got elected in 1972, uh, my first election. It was to a seat that had always been held by Republicans, although right. they were it was a moderate seat. But uh, a major reason for my success was it was 1972, 
And uh, I was representing a district which had thousands of students in it who had never voted from BU and MIT. So I'm one of the few politicians who benefited from George McGovern's coattails. Uh-huh. And I used a picture that I had taken with him, a punchline of an old joke from the Catskills, of a name dropper. And uh, he shows up at the Pope, and people say, well, who's, who's uh-huh. that with Goldberg? So the poster <laughs> was, uh, who's that guy with Barney Frank? And it was me and McGovern. And I had the great pleasure a couple of years ago, my last year in office, of at a retirement party, at a party honoring George just before he died, of giving it to him and having my picture taken with it. But the neatness is and everything. Um, look, I knew I, I figured I better embrace my unconventionality, um, especially when I was gay. I, I, I ate a lot because of stress. Um, I was overweight. I was, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I've always I've been at it in a lifelong war with things. I break things and I do them, and I have, I have had three relationships with men in my life, none, none as important as this most recent one, and I can hear all of them in my head saying, Bonnie, don't touch it, because <laughs> I would break things. I would decide that, or if I just pushed it a little harder or did this. So um, people would say, oh, you've got to look better, you gotta, and it was just too hard to do. And... Um, I got to say, though, Jim, my last, my my, my husband, yes, uh, has been more successful. And but he finally got to me. He said, "You know what? I know you don't care, but if you go out looking that way, people blame me. People <laughs> say, how can you let him go out like that?'" So Jim got to me with that, and I submit to his ministrations. But um, uh, I was speaking somewhere, and someone showed me a photo that had been taken. I looked a little disheveled, and I said, "You know, let's let's make the best of this." So I made it into a poster that said, "Neatness is and everything." Which, if you think about it, it's really kind of arrogant uh, because it's kind of uh, mock humble. But what it's really saying is, hey, this guy's very, very talented. So what if his hair isn't combed? Yeah. Well, I know. But that, that may be arrogant. But for a lot of us disheveled people out there, it, it gave us a place to well, go. Maybe that was so. my first coming out. <laughs> you ran for Congress in 1980. You, you replaced a kind of a legendary yes. figure, Robert Drynan, a a priest who who ran as an anti-war candidate uh, in Congress, but he he had to leave because the uh, Vatican demanded it. Bob Dryden had been the dean of Boston College Law School, was a brilliant legal scholar, um, and uh, he was a prodigy. He got elected. He got named a dean. He was in his thirties, uh, and then in 1970, uh, he had become active in politics. He was a great civil rights advocate, and he, uh, in 1970, uh, ran in a Democratic, liberal pre-primary to get the nomination to run against the incumbent congressman. There had been a redistricting. The incumbent congressman was very much a Vietnam hawk, and uh, Drynan ran in this pre-primary that was organized. That was actually, it turned out to be more of a contest than thought, because he, he, he won on, like, the third ballot against an articulate uh, Vietnam veteran named John Kerry. Yes. And Bob, uh, Bob, Bob narrowly beat out John, who then strongly supported him. And he then served for 10 years. And in 1980, the, the, many of the Vatican didn't like it. The Jesuits had supported him. He's a Jesuit who was. And um, then the new pope came in, John Paul II, and he was a tougher guy. And he ordered Drynan not to run again. And uh, on two days' notice, we all heard that. I was actually living in the adjacent district. My congressman was Tip O'Neill, obviously. In fact, I was getting to the point where I thought, you know what, I'm, I, I'm almost, I served eight years in the legislature. Another term, 
I had gone to law school to have a, another job. And so I was ready to retire from the legislature, come out, practice law, and I would have at that point been one of the most prominent by public office openly gay people. And so I was going to be a gay rights advocate and, and a lawyer. And I started coming out of the college and started telling people in 79, you know, uh, friends and relatives, et cetera. And then the almost literal thunderbolt came, and uh, I decided I would run. I could move. I lived a mile away. I had gained a kind of a good liberal representation in the legislature. It's interesting. There was a period of conservatism in Massachusetts in the 70s. Ed uh, King defeated Dukakis. Dukakis conser- in 78. Very conservative Democrat. And a, and a lot of people, a lot of my liberal colleagues who had conventional political ambitions kind of reined in. I didn't because I didn't think I'd go anywhere. I mean, it was an ironic situation. It was, you know, freedom was nothing left to lose. Yes. So I became, just as I became the head gay rights active, uh, advocate, I became kind of the leading liberal in Massachusetts in part by process of elimination. Nobody else really felt like taking it on. So then this unexpected vacancy comes up in one of the two districts in Massachusetts where liberals were a major factor, uh, mostly in Tips District, but secondly in Drainage. So I was able to win the nomination uh, in, in, uh, because I was the, the leading liberal. It was very close. I mean, the, the, I, I won both the primary and the final by uh, fairly narrow margins, but uh, I did get there, and so it is the case that it was it was the Pope that made me a congressman. If he had not ordered Drinan to leave, uh, I would never have run. And also prevented you from coming out uh, yes, earlier Yes, I went back in the did. closet. I, was, I would have been out 81 or 82. I went back in the closet because I could not have won. I nearly lost on the rumor, much less the reality. And uh, so I went to Washington, and I said, well, listen, maybe coming out and uh, keeping a congressional seat could be hard. This is 81, 82. This is still, I mean, uh, I'll give you an example. In 81, the District of Columbia has now repealed recently its law against same-sex intimacy, the sodomy law. And the House of Representatives, as it then could do constitutionally, Supreme Court changed that a little, vetoed that law by a vote of something like 330 to 120. That is, a majority of Democrats voted to overturn the District of Columbia's law. And this wasn't affirmative action. This wasn't hiring. This was sodomy. This is whether or not you can go to jail for having sex in, in somebody's bedroom. So uh, I didn't think that made any sense. Um, and I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll live a closeted life, but in Washington, I'm not at home. I'll live as a gay man privately and I'll be uh, closeted publicly. And it, it didn't work. Tip O'Neill was a mentor of yours. Uh, what, what was, I always thought he was one of the really great attractive figures in public life. What did you learn from him? Well, first of all, to talk about don't judge a book by its cover, Tip just looked like the classic, almost uh, uh, you know, movie uh, Irish caricature. Yes. Uh, he was, as he described himself, a big red nose and huge floppy ears and all that white hair and way overweight. Um, like he once told a story about it. he was in an airport and a guy came up to him and said, Hi, Tip, obviously thinking that Tip would remember him. And he said to the guy, Oh, you know, pal, you're making me a little uncomfortable. I mean, I, yeah, you recognize me. I'm Speaker of the House. I'm on TV all the time. I got my big nose and my big ears. So... You know what you should do? You shouldn't do that. You should come up to me and say, hi, Tip, I'm so-and-so. And so the guy said, okay, hi, Tip, I'm Robert Redford, <laughs> which is who it was. And, um, but um, he was a very smart guy and also one of those people who 
who fused the pragmatic and the, and, and the ideological yeah. sense. Uh, I was very, very taken with him the more I got to know him. A lot has been made of his relationship with Reagan. Obviously, you had some pitched battles back then in the 80s because Reagan brought this different, uh, very different view of government. And, um, and yet Tip O'Neill found a way to work with him. Tip was personally friendly with Reagan, but uh, very dismissive of his ideology. He regarded Reagan, the two Reagans, Reagan and Don Regan, who was the same yeah, Irishman who had forgotten where they came from, which was the harshest thing you could say. No, he 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 had very little regard for Reagan. For his, uh, he would mock his reading off cards. On the other hand, he said he was pragmatic. He had to make things go. Look, in '81, Reagan gets elected. And the House is nominally Democratic, but there is still a large number of Southern Democrats. Uh, you know, people talk about how there are more Republicans now in the House than there used to be. Yeah, but not more conservatives. You used to have 100 Southern Democrats, and now you have none. You do have Southern Democrats, and they're overwhelmingly liberal African-Americans. So the ideological balance hasn't shifted that way. But uh, people said to Tip, use your powers. Don't let the Reagan program come to a vote. He said, I hate that program. I'm going to do everything I can to get the votes against it, but it would be very bad for the country to, to simply refuse to do that. I'm not going to do that. It would have long-term negative consequences. And uh, uh, so, and, and he worked with Reagan personally. Uh, he also believed back then, and this one was, uh, you know, th there needs to be some bipartisanship in foreign policy. And I'll give you one example, which to the Republicans, current Republicans' discredit, illustrates an enormous difference. In 1983, when Tip was Speaker, 280 Marines were killed in Beirut because right. a guy got in there with a truck. And we did not blame Reagan. We said the terrible things have happened to an American. I mean, the, the contrast between the way the Democrats responded then and Benghazi now is one of the most depressing examples of the deterioration in political morality in the strongest sense. And he did work with Reagan on Social Security, and he got, you know, it wasn't a one-way street. Uh, so he was able to—he recognized that Reagan had this power, but uh, he, he was at the same time, in, in some of my conversations, uh, dismissive almost to the point of contempt for Reagan's, A, lack of understanding of public policy, and B, the, the, the values. The example, he was talking to Reagan one time, fighting with him to have some, some student loan program somewhere. He gave us an example, some young woman he knew who— very bright, and because of the family, you can go to college. So Reagan reached into his pocket and said, come on, Tip, you and I will pay our tuition. And he said, no, no, that, that, we can't. But I just talk about one person. Right. It was this inability to understand the, the issue as a national issue that just missed him. And yet they had a relationship. They talked. They didn't, uh, they didn't personally discredit each other as Americans. No, and in fact, that led, uh, that was the beginning of what I think was, again, where it took a bad turn, um, because Newt Gingrich uh, held that against Reagan. He held, Reagan also had a very good personal relationship with Bob Michael, who was a Republican leader. And this is the beginnings, I think, of the terrible deterioration of American politics in general. Newt Gingrich was the one who said, hey, enough of this. Uh, the Democrats aren't honorable people with whom we disagree. These are evil people. And so he began his crusade and ultimately was able to get rid of Michael. And, and, and he set out to demonize Tip O'Neill personally and to denounce any Republican who didn't join in. And that began the prevailing, uh, the prevailing uh, sort of gestalt of the Republican uh, caucus. I mean, I think we've seen some of this on both sides. The Republicans are far, far more 
guilty of it. But well, the Republicans began it. No, no question. People respond. Yeah. But if you want a, an example of why there is no equivalence, you live through this. In 2008, as chairman of the Financial Services Committee, yes. along with Chris Dodd, who was chairman of the Senate fin- Banking Committee, I responded to the direction of Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid to go to work with the Bush administration. You know, people don't look at this enough. In the David. midst of the economic, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, the stock market was... And six weeks before, the, it was the same piece right. about this time. We just had the anniversary. Here's the situation. It's 2008. First of all, it's going to be a bad year, it looks like, economically. So George Bush, early in 2008, asked Pelosi and Reid, can I have a stimulus? Because the economy is going to be hurting. The partisan response, the Mitch McConnell response, would have been good, not not articulated. Let the economy hurt. They they worked with him, and they gave him the kind of stimulus he wanted, which was tax cutting, although Nancy made it progressive. But then here comes 2008, September, two months before the election. The economy is about to tank. And so the Republican administration people, the Secretary of Treasury, the Bush appointee at the Fed, come to Harry Reid and, and, uh, and uh, Nancy Pelosi and say, we need your help. And so we Democrats worked absolutely without any consideration of partisanship. And we did things that we knew would be unpopular. You and I were just in this panel with yes. Newt Gingrich, or where Karl Rove said, oh, the TARP was part of the problem. Yeah, the TARP was George Bush's idea. Right. And we Democrats voted for it because we... They were in control. I could have designed something better if I was in control, but but that or nothing, you had to go with that. And so we gave You actually co- did it while the House, uh, many in the House Republican caucus walked away from The House it. Republicans voted against it in a majority twice, not as big a majority. I would urge people to go read three books. Sheila Baer, who was the Bush appointee to head the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Ben Bernanke, he's appointee to the Federal Reserve. And Hank Paulson, his Secretary of Treasury. All of them writing their memoirs are very critical of the Republicans, not just, by the way, for voting against the, the uh, uh, immediate response, but those three helped us write the financial reform bill. All three of them take some credit for what we did. And what you got was when, when the economy was in trouble under Bush, we Democrats responded. Barack Obama gets elected and... People said to me, what are having a bipartisanship? And it's very simple. Barack Obama got elected. And the Republicans never even thought of offering him the kind of bipartisan support that we gave George Bush. Well, they had a, a strategy. And I, I've said this before. They, they were flat on their backs. Democrats had taken over the House and the Senate in large numbers. And uh, they knew that we were going to have to work through some very serious economic problems that were going to require hard votes. And their calculation was, let those guys do it, and then we can run against and them they had one of, That's exactly right. And they had this advantage. I, I'm not one who usually cites biblical uh, examples. But the King You've got Sol- the Talmudic beard now. Yes, that's so, right. Yeah. King Solomon's story is very relevant. Um, in the King Solomon story, he says, I'll cut the baby in half. And the real mother gives in because or she said she would give in because mm-hmm. she doesn't want the baby cut in half. When we, people say, how come you guys get outmaneuvered by these Republicans? Because we care about government and they don't. That's a great advantage. We could not, we would not, because of our own commitment to the good that is done by the government, allow it to founder. We worked to help George Bush because we knew that if things went really bad, the, people, the poorer you were, the worse off you would be. The heads of, of, of J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs weren't going to be hurting if the economy slowed down. They had enough money there. And so what we did 
to help George Bush. And by the way, this is, I think there is a consistent pattern of more Democratic congressional support for Republican presidents than vice versa, because they don't care about government. And that became even worse during the post, during the Obama years. And, 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 and the analogy is this, um, the, the baby is government. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans are the, are the mother who isn't the mother. And we're <laughs> the real mother. So whenever it came to a situation where the question is, if you don't give in, the baby's going to be cut in half, we're under more pressure to give in than they do. They don't care if the baby's cut in half. And that was one of the reasons that they had a, a strategic advantage over these past years. Got to take another short break. We'll be right back with Barney Frank. You mentioned the uh, financial reform. You're forever going to be re- – I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that you were involved in. In fact, uh, before I get to the financial thing, I have to say I quote you all the time about uh, folks who uh, oppose abortion. About They believe that life begins that from the federal government. Yeah. They believe that from the federal government standpoint, life begins at conception but ends at birth. Right, right. It was in 82 about Reagan. Um, so – but on financial reform, uh, you hear uh, the progressive complaint. You still hear it. You heard it from Bernie Sanders in the primary that, uh, you, you know, we should have broken up the big banks. We should have uh, taken a more punitive uh, approach to uh, cor- uh, banking executives and so on, and that ultimately the, 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 the law was not. Uh, responsive enough, and uh, I want to give you a chance to uh, respond to that. Sure. Uh, first, dealing with Glass-Steagall, which is a part of Elizabeth Warren, who was a brilliant... We should explain. Course. Everybody talks about Glass-Steagall, and he did too. The right. Glass- Glass-Steagall was passed in 1933, which was one of his problems, um, before we had subprime mortgages, before we had derivatives, before we had a lot of these... The modern financial yeah, it would, system. It would not have... If it had been an effect, it would have had no effect in terms of the, uh, the problems. Lehman Brothers and AIG would not have been retarded from any of their bad practices. Um, but as to the law in general, first of all, as to being much tougher, there were a couple of areas where it would like to go tougher, that bill passed the United States Senate with no votes to spare. Uh, it needed 60 and it got three Republican votes, uh, Scott Brown, Olympia Snow, and Susan Collins from Maine and Massachusetts, but they had decided they would vote together. So, so um, we didn't have the votes to make it any tougher. Um, we did have a few more votes in the House, but I lost a couple of votes on the House floor. Um, as far as breaking up the banks, no, nobody was arguing about doing that right then. We were in 2009 and 10 when we were doing this, still in a terrible financial crisis. Pe- loans weren't being made. The notion that you would do something as disruptive uh, when you're losing 800,000 jobs a month, nobody was talking about that. The question is whether you should have talked about that going forward. I still do not see a big argument for it. Um, the second thing— Not the too big, for, too big to fail uh, argument that they get— too big, and therefore the government's going to be on the hook for them. Right, because that's what we dealt with. The question is not their size, but the size of the indebtedness that they have incurred that they cannot pay off. So what we did was to say, in a lot of ways, that they cannot become, we made it much harder for them to become indebted beyond their ability to pay off. Well, we started by cutting out the very bad loans, the subprime loans, the ones that wouldn't be repaid. We then have said in a variety of ways, first of all, that the institutions have to have 
much more money on hand in case things go bad. But secondly, individual transactions have to be protected. AIG was $170 billion in debt because it had sold something called credit default swaps without having the money to back them up. They couldn't do that today. We now have a law that says if you're going to do this, you've got to have reserves uh, set aside. So we have now made it very, very unlikely that the banks will become so indebted. But the other thing we did is this. We didn't say nobody is any longer too big to fail. The problem was in 2008 and before, if you were so indebted that you couldn't pay your debts, the federal government then had to step in, many felt, under the Bush administration, because otherwise the consequences would be terrible. So what we said was, okay, if you are so indebted and you can't pay your debts and they are large enough to threaten the financial stability of the country, we will pay some of those debts. We changed the law so you could be selective about paying. You'd pay as much as you need to. But with this, first of all, the institution fails. So if AIG came to the federal government today and said we can't pay our debts, first thing is, okay, you're out of business. You're in a receivership. You're all fired. Secondly, we're going to liquidate you, and whatever money we get, we're going to pay off the debts. Third, if we still need more money to pay off some of your debts to prevent a crisis, the federal government will advance that, and the Secretary of the Treasury is then mandated by law to assess every financial institution in America that has $50 billion or more in assets to make up for it. So the difference is they're not too big to fail. They fail, and their debts will be partially repaid by the federal government, but all of that will be totally repaid. But as I said, beyond that, though, we have we have put in before that a lot of rules that make it much less likely that they'll be so indebted. This uh, leads to the discussion that we started earlier when you talked about what you had learned in the 60s about uh, uh, this, the, the, the sort of tug and pull between pragmatism and liberalism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it kind of came to the fore this year when you were running, I guess, the Rules Committee. Is that right, at the convention? I was co-chair of the Rules Committee, yes. And there was, uh, there was all this tug and pull with some folks on the left uh, about that. And you were pretty blunt about your feelings about all that. And I just want you to talk a little bit about, as a guy who has been sort of a um, liberal icon for a long time, your concerns about absolutism. Yeah. Right. Although in the rules situation, it worked out because what you had was the key in the rules committee was Senator Sanders' insistence that ex officio delegates be uh, abolished. People use the phrase superdelegates. It's unfortunate. Elected it's, officials yeah, and so there. on. But, you know, ex officio means you get to do one thing because of some other thing you've got. So it was elected officials, members of the national committee. So Sanders' position was, let's get rid of them all. And he ran into great opposition from the Congressional Black Caucus who felt that their ability to go there was very, very important and not have to compete with people in their own districts. Now, Senator Sanders at the time and in the future, uh, having decided the Democratic Party, having believed the Democratic Party was not a very good institution, then immediately decided he really should be one of the heads of it. And um, uh, I, I, have to, I have to give him credit to have been able to run as the outsider in his 26th year in the Congress of the United States. But... Um, what happened was he was in a dispute with the Congressional Black Caucus, so he dropped his demand for total abolition of the uh, non-elected delegates, and he, he went to something else. My job was simply to preside over the deal, although there was an interesting aspect to it because he was also a great advocate for transparency. We were at the Rules Committee meeting, and the Clinton and Sanders people had come to an agreement to 
reduce the number of unelected delegates but not abolish it. And then it turned out the Sanders people couldn't persuade the other Sanders people to vote for it. So at one point, some of the Sanders people came to myself and my co-chair, Senator Vanderput, and said, we need a recess um, so we can have a small caucus. I said, okay, but I'm not, if you move for it, okay, I'm not going to unilaterally do that. So we then had a two-hour recess so the Sanders delegates could go off in private and argue with each other about this. Uh, and But we made the deal. But my objection was more broadly to, to Senator Sanders' approach. I did not think he had been a very effective member of Congress. And there is this, uh, I, I do believe that you should, clearly idealism comes first. You don't belong trying to run other people's lives unless you're committed to ideals. But the more idealistic you are, the more morally you are obligated to be pragmatic. And I find some of the people on the left who get emotional satisfaction of insisting on purity, uh, even if it's not going to bring anything about. And, and I have been particularly frustrated by those who think that the way to get ahead politically is by demonstrating and marching. And I give the uh, example of the Tea Party and Occupy. I don't agree with everything Occupy said. I agree with much Occupy of it. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy yeah. Wall Street. Um, I disagree with almost everything the Tea Party said. To my great regret, the Tea Party movement has had much more impact on American politics than Occupy Wall Street. Because the Tea Party people correctly understood that for them, what they needed to do was to get control of the political machinery, to register people to vote, to vote in primaries, and, and, and influence public policy. Uh, Occupy Wall Street decided that they would bring about great change by smoking pot and having drum circles. And it turns out voting in primaries is a better way to do it. Why is there such a, a reticence among... Sanders did very, very well among young people. And there's still a resistance to Hillary Clinton among them. Uh, why is that? Why is she having the problems that she's having? Two reasons. First of all, as I've said on several occasions, in fantasy Hillary Clinton... She is having more success than any comparable figure. I mean, this is a terrible year to be someone who was identified as having been a responsible public official for a long time. So people want to know what happened to Hillary Clinton. Well, she did a hell of a lot better than Jeb Bush, who just totally collapsed. Or than, uh, I don't know who, David Cameron, Angela Merkel is having problems. I mean, the, 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 the public in democracies is, having, is, in a bad, not, is in a bad mood worldwide. Um, secondly, she was the victim of, and she's right, a very successful campaign to accuse her of things of which she was innocent. I am frustrated that some in the media still refer to these controversies of the 90s. In November of 1998, as a member of the House Judiciary Committee, I questioned Kenneth Starr on everything that had been brought against the Clintons other than Lewinsky, Whitewater, Vincent Foster, the FBI files, the travel office. He said, under oath, on the record, that there was no evidence that reflected negatively on her on any of those things. So people still remember the accusations. Um, Do you think she bears scar tissue from that? I mean, she... No question. Uh, and then the emails came. Mm -hmm. And clearly, she is culpable on, on, on the emails. She made, she, she made a mistake. Think those are related because she became so... Well, they became more credible. It, it, what happened was it kind of... But in her own motivation, do you think it, it, all of those assaults made her more reticent about I, being forthcoming? They may have. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's frustrating when you've been exonerated. In fact, I asked Kenneth Starr, talk about exonerate. I said, on one of those issues, at what date, on what date did you exonerate 
the Clintons. And he said, I can't give you a date when they were exonerated because there had never been any evidence to implicate them in the first place. Um, I think that may have, uh, have been the case. Um, uh, and then you had the, uh, the, the, the uh, and they get conflated, the, the emails of the DNC, which were not hers. Um, Make the case for her. You know her well. Your sister was very close. Oh, to- she is, first of all, for me, you know this, her values are right. She wants to help people. She wants government to be an effective force to help people who do not do as well in the private economy as, 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 as some do. Um, she is a strong... Which is a lot of... 80% yeah. of America. You know, go back right to the children's uh, health plan she had. She, 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 she understands that government is to help people who uh, can do some help on other issues, environmental. Um, gay rights, so it's true. She was late, uh, as was almost every other body who wanted, as everybody who wanted to be president on marriage. But one of the most emotional moments I remember was in 2000. You know, we've made a lot of progress in LGBT rights. 2000, it was uh, still somewhat chancy. She marched in the gay pride parade in, in New York City. I will tell you, uh, you know, I was a 60-year-old gay man at the time. I felt some of the emotion, and I saw it even more among younger people. He was the first lady of the United States. He was, was, was Nancy Reagan, Eleanor Roosevelt, Jacqueline Kennedy, marching in a gay pride parade, marching... Uh, not adjacent to the guys in the bowers and jockstraps, but maybe only a couple of blocks away. Enormously powerful. Um, she and her husband both have been tremendous, unremitting supporters of racial equality and racial justice. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe she's right on the value. Secondly, I think she understands how government works. She has that commitment to it. You know, people forget that she was kind of the left wing of the Clinton administration. People should go back and read about how the Republicans tried to kind of discredit the president by by uh, uh, blaming her some. So I think, and, and she's good at governance. Unfortunately, that's not always uh, an asset. Well, I'm, especially at a time when uh, Trump is exploiting the fact that a lot of people think government doesn't work. I I will be very frustrated if she doesn't win. I mean, I obviously hope she does. Um, it's not just the harm that Trump will do. We government has been unfortunately discredited. We're in a vicious cycle. People get mad at government, mainly because government has not been able to offset the economic impact of the private market and its exacerbating inequality. But people get mad, so then they vote for people who also don't like the government. And the more they vote for people who don't think government should do anything, the less government does, and the madder they get. It's a bad. Hillary Hillary Clinton could break that cycle. One of the things I am sure of, if she wins, as I still, as I hope she does, and I believe still that she will. She will be a much better president than people thought. She'll have one asset. She'll benefit from low expectations. And I think if a Hillary Clinton presidency, especially if we take the Senate, which is also very important, we have a chance to begin the process of restoring people's understanding of government. You can't talk them out of being anti. You, you've got to show them. If, we, if she's president and we get a major infrastructure program putting people back to work mm-hmm. and you can do something to maybe extend Medicare for people to help them with their health costs and, and raise the minimum wage and do a few other things, you begin then to persuade a lot of white, middle, and working class people that uh, the government can work for them. And, and, and I don't see any other way to get out of that cycle. Finally, let me ask you this. You, you described uh, Congress when you arrived there it's obviously a much different place right now, and you you talked a little bit about why. Can we uh, ever get that back? Can we get that sense of collegiality that was much more yes. prevalent back? Uh, I'm a little back? more pessimistic. We can't because people have to understand the, the dynamic element. Look, in 2008, 
No, it's not like this is we're talking about the 20th, 20th century. In 2008, we had collegiality. We Democrats in control worked with the Republicans. In fact, Mitch McConnell called it one of the great moments in the history of part the Senate of the problem when was that bill. Spencer Backus was the Republican chair, minority leader of the committee I was on. He and I worked together to pass a bill to restrict the bad subprime mortgages. That's when things were beginning to go the other way. He almost lost his ranking minority position over that because the right wing was taking over the Republican Party. In other words, I, I, the problem is not institutional, and it's not a plague on both your houses. This is largely, and Democrats have responded, no question, but this is largely the result of the right-wing takeover of the Republican Party. And, uh, by the way, under George Bush, you had no child left behind. I voted against it, but it was a bipartisan operation. There were other cooperative things that were done. What happened was the Republican Party moved to the right, Barack Obama gets elected, and we have this terrible crisis, and as you said, Barack Obama then has a responsibility of cleaning up the mess he inherited, and the Republican Party benefited from some of this opposition. So to answer your question, yeah, we can get back. All we need, it's a big all, is for the Bob Doles of the world to take back their party. Uh, I was hoping that there would be a very big Democratic win, not just because I'd like to see the public policy that would result, but because it would it would galvanize Republicans. I hope they will still be that way. If Hillary Clinton wins, one of the benefits I hope will be that the Republicans will take their party back. That's all that needs to happen. You know, you don't need huge changes. You just need people, conservatives who believe in governance, arguing with liberals who believe in governance, the way it was as late as 2008. Barney, Frank, you're going to go down as one of the great legislators of your generation, and uh, you're missed there. Thank you. But I really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you, David. I've enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.